Hello and welcome to Sync Music Matters, a podcast that explores the beautiful relationship between music and the moving image. My name's Jim Hostrip and I'm your host on this journey, as each week I chew the fat with industry professionals who, on a daily basis, work with music for visuals. Now you might immediately assume that I'm talking about composers, but I'm also talking about editors, music supervisors, directors and anyone else who's involved with the synchronous process of pairing audio and visuals. In today's episode, I'm talking to TV, film and theatre composer Isabel Waller-Bridge. So, what can you expect from today's chat? Well, Isabel reveals how she finds musical inspiration in pretty much anything but music. In fact, when talking about inspiration, she tends to reference people like Francis Bacon, Tilda Swinton and Anne Carson. But she also shows her love for composers like Ennio Morricone, Danny Elfman, Gustav Mahler and Wendy Carlos, amongst others. We dig into the prevalence of drone-based music in modern score and her love for it, that and uh, Detroit techno. Uh, we go under the skin with her work on the Netflix series Munich, The Edge of War, as well as her recent project with the Philharmonia as part of their climate change season. We also talk about her electronic score for Vita and Virginia and how the instructions from director Chanya Button were lasers and no piano. Uh, Isabel also reveals why she's petrified of monkeys. As ever, all the music mentioned in this episode is linked in the show notes, which you can find on your preferred podcast platform or in a slightly more digestible format on my website, larpmusic.com forward slash sync music matters podcast. And of course, sync music matters podcast is hyphenated. Alternatively, you could just go to larpmusic.com and click on podcast in the menu. It's probably a bit easier. Isabel Waller-Bridge is an award-winning composer and sound designer for TV, film and theatre. Her recent TV soundtracks include Emma, Black Mirror, the episode Rachel, Jack and Ashley 2, Vanity Fair, Vita and Virginia, The Split and Fleabag. And recent theatre credits include Wojciech at the Old Vic and Knives in Hens at the Donmar Warehouse. Isabel's eclectic scores move seamlessly between sweeping orchestral and analogue electronica, often blurring the lines between music and sound design. She won Best Composer at Underwire Film Festival and winner of Best Sound Designer at Off West End Theatre Awards. Isabel likes to flex her electric pop chops and has even been arranging strings for Norwegian artist Aurora and was commissioned by the Philharmonia to write music as part of their climate change season. Isabel Waller-Bridge. Hello. Thanks for joining Sync Music Matters. Thank you for such a nice introduction. Oh, you're very welcome. It's uh, Pop Chops is the first. I like that. Pop Chops, yes, pop absolutely. Chops. The, the, the Philharmonia wasn't, isn't quite so poppy as uh, writing for Aurora, but, but still. Yeah. Um, so the first question I kind of like to start off with for everyone is... Um, if we were to sort of rewind to when you were a young girl, somewhere sort of, I don't know, between five and ten, if someone had asked you, what would you like to be when you grow up, what would you have replied? Oh, gosh. Well, this is going to sound absolutely mad, but probably when I was five, you know, like from I started learning the piano when I was four. And then I'm not kidding, but like all the photos of me when I was younger are all music sort of say I'm either like sitting on someone's knee at the piano I'm either like banging something or strumming on something and and I think I was also really interested in art history and art and so one of the things that I was thinking about doing was actually becoming a curator um which I would have loved to have done I mean (laughs) I wouldn't I wouldn't want to do it now um I feel quite committed to the thing that I'm doing but I uh but that always really interested 
interested me. And I think, um, yeah, basically, I think music and visual art have always been really strong. So it was always there was always like a musical thread, certainly artistic thread, but very heavily musical. Yeah, really, really musical all the way from the beginning. So at what point did because I've had this conversation with a few people and I think certainly for me growing up, music was never presented as a as a possibility as a career. Uh, at what point did you kind of realise that, you know, music could potentially be a, a viable career? Or were you thinking of it in terms of career or just as in, I love this, I'm going to do it? I don't think I was thinking about it as a career until much later. I think I realised that it was what, what I wanted to do, but the idea of actually earning a living from it was like, that was a dream that I was really trying not to kind of, I was trying to keep my kind of expectations quite low and realised that I really enjoy doing it and it gives me a lot of strength and pleasure and all of those things but I was quite prepared to um maybe be an academic actually is what I thought I might do late that was later on when I got to university and then I was going to go and do a PhD and thought about kind of going down that route but when I was at school we didn't really it wasn't it wasn't really suggested as a kind of career I don't think even though we were taught about composers we weren't really talking you know we weren't talking about the kind of film composers and we weren't I was listening to them um and getting really obsessed with that Morricone but they were so far away they were you know I couldn't imagine it and then I was quite a serious pianist so I did think about perhaps you know but my technique was never that good (laughs) so I knew that it was I'd be a different kind of player I wouldn't be your kind of really traditional player um so it was not until later yeah is there a different mindset between say being a concert pianist or like a musician versus being a composer well I think the the discipline that they both being a composer being a musician I think requires like the same amount of kind of discipline but the way it's sort of the practice of it is quite different I think or maybe it's not I mean I don't know how qualified I am to talk about the like being a musician because I really only do it you know I play only occasionally and Mm. perform only occasionally but when I was being really serious about it I was practicing for kind of nine or ten hours a day no joke like really and loved it so much and that kind of structure really appealed to me and, and going really deep into something and with composing it's a kind of strange with with practicing and with you, you feel the improvements of it kind of almost instantly I think like you practice something over and over and over and over and over again and then you can sort of do it better but with composing I feel like I have to do a lot of thinking and a lot of sitting and <laughs> looking out the window <laughs> yeah. and then eventually I'll start writing. So it's like it the energy is different. Um yeah, sure. but the time is the same. Okay. That would segue nicely into sort of talking about your process, but something else I just want to sort of come back to is you mentioned sort of the the idea of academia because you actually you studied music at university, didn't you? And then you actually did a, a masters as well. Mm. Um now I think this is as much for me as it is anything else, but I've I think I in the past have been quite surprised by you know, when I've had sort of 
interns uh, been surprised by how many of them have finished the degree and then gone on to do a master's and I think I have been guilty of been sort of quite scathing about the sort of the doing of the master's I'm sort of like and this is probably speaks mainly to the fact that I am very much I'm sort of more an apprenticeship kind of guy and I'm like we're learning on the job rather than sort of studying do you feel that doing the master's stood you in better stead later on it's a it's a really interesting one because Straight after I did my master's, I then sort of basically did an apprenticeship with a film composer. And the difference in the rate of learning was quite extreme, I think, because it was really the deep end. Like the master's really fed my curiosity and gave me loads of time and space to kind of explore ideas on my own and being supervised by people I really respected, by the composers I really respected. So George Benjamin and Sylvina Milstein. And so that that gave me um, that sort of I felt like that gave me a kind of autonomy over my own voice and my and my work and really and really I could I really just gave me the time to kind of exp- I got really into spectral music and music concrete and then that that actually made me want to do sound design for theatre so I wonder without those that learning without that time to learn. But then having said that, I think if you're curious about things, I don't think you need to necessarily go and do a master's to have the time to do it. You know, I think I still I'm not, you know, I still am up until 4am kind of going down like wormholes (laughs) about like, you know, pieces of music that I've heard or, you know, composers that I like. So we finished the master's. What was the sort of then progression to working, you know, sort of doing your apprenticeship and sort of into music? When I was just finishing my master's, that was the kind of thing of, oh God, like, what am I going to do? You know, that's like, what do you, what do you do for money? Essentially, like, how am I going to earn a living? I was doing like every temp job under the sun. Literally, I was like working at the stock exchange on reception. I was like working in like Selfridges on the shop floor. I was like literally doing everything. Mm. And then I um, applied for a job at the London Chamber Orchestra because I noticed that they weren't playing any new music and like doing the masters, we were really wanting to collaborate with um, London ensembles or London orchestras. So I asked the London Chamber Orchestra whether I could come and like run, like start a young composers scheme with them. And that the only, the deal would be that they can maybe play some of my music (laughs) as well as playing other people, other young composers. Um, and then I partnered that with the National Gallery, that scheme. And uh, and then I invited composers to come in. So it was George Fenton and Graham Fitkin and Cheryl Francis Hode and Ruth Wall. Um, and people from, so composers from lots of different disciplines. And then from that, I, um, so I was running that scheme really with the London Chamber Orchestra for probably about a year. I think while I was sort of coming to the end of my master's ditched the PhD idea. Um, George Fenton was one of the composers who I had invited to come and speak to the group of young composers that were having their music performed by the orchestra. And I asked him whether I could come and assist him. Um, and he said yes. And then I assisted him for about five years. And that was that was, that was was how that happened. I love that. It's, it's almost you, you identified a kind of an opportunity where 
there was a lack of new music mm. and sort of thought, okay, well, what can I do to sort of help change that? Um, and then out of that just came sort of numerous, well, one particular opportunity, particularly with to go and um, to go and become a sort of apprentice. Um, and it's but it's that it was that proactive approach of sort definitely. of going, okay, what can I do? Well, definitely the kind of proactive, even I mean, forever really. It's like even when I was at school, you know, playing as much as possible. You know, we would all. I was always sort of like playing other people's music or writing for other people and then certainly university kind of uh, started a collective um, with a few other composers and we would sort of we would perform like in um, like really dodgy places you know like Edinburgh um, you know and but great like that was the stuff you know it was kind of really like in the middle of the night in some random you know something that used to be a kind of public loo or something you know like or really at the back of a pub and then same thing with theatre when I started you know we were doing exactly the same thing so that proactive nature has always been really central to I think everything that I've done I've never been a wait for it person no always been a go well it I think the music industry, possibly slightly more the commercial side side of things, but there is an element of, you know, waiting for the big break. Um, but actually that kind of proactive attitude and proactive nature, it means that you create opportunities from which a break can arise and obviously kind of completely worked out uh, in your favour. But as again, as well, it sounds like, you know, it's um, you mentioned curiosity earlier um, and you just sort of constantly been sort of curious about, oh, what can I do? What can we explore? What, you know, and I wonder if you've, do you feel that that's because it's almost kind of like that slightly kind of visionary side of you where you're sort of looking at, okay, what can we do that maybe feeds into kind of rather than being a performing musician, being a composer, because I always think with musicians, musicians are, they yet like, you know, you do work practicing nine, 10 hours a day um, on their craft. But I know loads of musicians who don't feel comfortable sort of writing music because they're very much sort of they've, they're sort of masters of their own instrument whereas I think with composers sometimes it's slightly more of a kind of like a visionary thing it's like I'm decidedly average at lots of instruments I'm not good at any I'm not particularly good at any kind of instruments but you're really good at guitars what are you talking about you're like an amazing guitarist no I, no, no no I well thank you it's very kind of you to say but I just always think that it's it, I, I've always had a mind whereby it's kind of like there's there's been a vision and that's kind of what's driven me um rather than sort of pursuit of excellence on an on instrument but it's interesting what you say as well about how with composition you don't get that kind of immediate feedback of of thinking oh yeah I'm getting better at this it's whereas you do when you're sort of practicing yeah yeah definitely it's and I wonder whether the um because it's that's the thing it's not just been kind of for opportunities it is the vision I think you're right in terms of I really agree with that in terms of the visionary thing because I have this kind of folder on my computer of projects that I want to do and they go back, you know, 10 years, maybe more or like the seeds of the ideas started. And I'm just, I've got, you know, I'm just waiting for the right time, really like creatively, like when I feel like that could, but they're really detailed um, ideas. And, and some of them, there's one project that really was an idea from about eight or nine years ago. That is possibly just about to happen and and that there's all you know when if somebody says oh have you is there anything kind of kicking around that you that you thought that you might like to do there always is I've always had some sort of and I yeah I wonder 
It's really interesting that, because I think part of um, the, compo- for me anyway, the composing thing is like response, re- a sort of response to to another f- art form. So, because it's been really interesting, I signed a record deal and I've been trying to write this album and I'm finding it really difficult and I realise it's because I'm not, I don't, I'm not responding. I'm not collaborating with something else. I'm only, you know, it's just me. And so I've really had to go on a, like a proper sort of figure out a process for that. And all the other projects, you know, they're specifically like inspired by an artist's work that I, you know, it's that kind of stuff. So it's almost harder when you've got carte blanche than when you've actually got a brief or you are responding to visuals or a narrative that exists already. I find it very, yeah, I'm finding it very challenging. Well, I suppose particularly if you kind of get very used to working in that way if you if you've sort of constantly responding to someone's work and then all of a sudden someone goes hey do you know what you can now do whatever you want you're like Ooh, yeah <laughs> and it's an idea definitely and i did i remember the first meeting with the label who i love so much and they've been so supportive actually because they completely get it the first meeting i had with them i was like i don't i don't know what to i feel like this has to be kind of an expression of my whole life and they were like no 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 <laughs> just you know pick an experience or pick a you know some just it has to, you can be micro in the like in the genesis in the idea that kind of sparks it all it doesn't have to be kind of um really broad it can be quite specific but uh yeah that i found it really really difficult and also because you know I don't know. It's a weird one, though. It's like, it's because I get I psych myself out. So I'll write, you know, I've got like seventy pieces that I've kind of started, just like noodles on the piano and like starting to develop. But it's also related to a deadline thing. I think without having a hard deadline, I really find it difficult to. This deadline is so part of my process. It's it's like the first thing that I need to know. So you basically need this record label to come back and say we need this album by next week, and then you'll. You'll dig deep. You'll basically do like two weeks worth of all nighters and come up with the goods <laughs> at the end. Of basically, it. That, well, actually, the thing that happened, which has made it's like I know that I'm going to have to write it now, is because the um, uh, South Bank Centre asked me if I wanted to do a performance as part of their Purcell sessions, which is this um, series of concerts that they put on in the Purcell room, which is in May next year. In May next year, yeah. And I was like, I definitely want to do it because I really love performing. I don't do it enough. And it's it's like, I'd really look forward to it. But I was thinking, God, like, what am I going <laughs> to, what am I going to perform? Because I, and then I was like, this is perfect. This is absolutely perfect because I know now that I have to have finished it all before the concert so I can then maybe release some of it and then practice it and then perform it. So it's like... There, there's your deadline. Yeah. And that is very classic of me actually is just something that is really, really terrifying. Yeah. So... If something gets you out of your comfort zone, that's a that's a positive thing. It is. It can be really painful, though. And there's like, a, in terms of that process, like every time I start a new project, I'm always really insecure at the beginning. I tend to kind of call my agent at some point and be like, this is terrible, <laughs> you know, and then and then it's just every time. And I recognize that now. And then I send off the first bunch of stuff. The feedback comes back and it's, you know, it's usually, you know, I'm not you know, it's, it's okay. <laughs> I'm doing it. And, uh, so just going back to, cause I think quite, I'm quite interested. So you've got this, this album where you can literally just do anything. Where, where do you start with that? What's the 
kind of beginning process? Do you start sort of just immersing yourself in sort of music or do you just sit down at a piano? And then how does that then differ from how you would approach, a, say, a film or a, a TV show? I Well, actually, if I start with the, the process of the film and the TV, because it's so, something that I know, so I'm much more kind of well-versed sure. in it, I guess. <laughs> something you've worked out already, you're still working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I applied that. Basically, I'll start with that because then I had to apply it to the album. Um, but where possible, I really love to be on board as a, as you know, it doesn't, we could, they could still be at script stage. Um, and what I'll tend to do is read the script, have a conversation with the director and whoever else is kind of creatively kind of brought into that. Sometimes it's a producer, you know, it's definitely, um, the production designer, you know, because the aesthetics are really connected to the music for me. Um, and I think, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would agree with that. And so then I'll be sent kind of stills or I'll ask for kind of paintings or colours or something that, you know, if they haven't shot anything yet, something that will kind of, that I can look at to start start a kind of visual exploration, which then kind of translates itself into sound. Um, and then I'll pick a scene from the, if I'm still, if we're still working from script stage, I'll pick a scene or pick, you know, a moment and I'll just try and kind of, um, I'll just sit down always at the piano really um, and start messing around with stuff. And then I'll start getting creative with that and then bring it into the box and start kind of playing with it. Basically, I think the, the, the way I always work is I'll have like really in-depth kind of creative chats and then I will always write away from the picture. So then I'll take the sketches that have just come from the inspiration from the conversations and from the aesthetics and uh, from the story and from the journey that I know that the characters go on. And then I'll apply it to the picture. But then actually I just did a film called Munich and the director did an amazing thing actually at the beginning. I was on that film for a long time. Actually it was like nine months. So we were at script stage and he, um, he asked me, he gave me five headline words that for him relate to the journey of the story of the film and asked me to write a kind of theme or one you know piece of music that relates to that expresses those words and they were quite broad you know it was um kind of family I mean really really you know the broad and so actually a film that I've just started working on I've kind of brought that process in and so one of the words that um you know we're thinking about is trauma because that's a big part of the film and so I'm just immersing myself in that kind of what that sounds like um so it really is a responsive kind of process and what what does trauma sound like well at the moment it sounds actually quite it's quite it's not loud at the moment it's not loud it's um it's quite it's quite dense but it's not like a very vertical sound for me at the moment. Um, but I, and it's not a piano sound, you know, it's not, I don't think it's like, as it doesn't have the warmth or the, I don't know, something that it's more abstract. Colder. Yeah. And it's interesting as well, I suppose, because it's interesting that you're starting with a sort of like a key emotion. Because obviously, when you're when you're writing music, particularly to picture, I think, well, but generally any type type of music, it's all about emotion. It's eliciting an, an emotion in in the person who's listening. So you've identified one key 
emotion and it's interesting as well it sounds like you're all are you kind of still kind of adapting your process you're taking a learning from one film and sort of going hey that worked really well for me let's try and sort of oh, yeah. use that but I think I'll be doing that until I'm 90 hopefully you know what I mean always like uh always evolving and I think that's also that feeds back into why I'm always kind of reaching out for the new like for different kind of projects and also really enjoy doing kind of different genres because it keeps me on my toes but to answer the other part of your question about the album process um that the first thing that I what did I, I I think the first thing that I do I really love Anne Carson who's a writer and a poet and um I'm really obsessed with the Greeks I really feel like my kind of life and work motto is go Greek or go home in terms of so I really feel like and I really really love uh I really love those stories and how they, how, you know, how, how the world is, we all, we're all, you know, we operate on the same scale as the Greeks did in those stories. And anyway, but Anne Carson writes a lot about them. So I went to her, because I'm writing lyrics as well. And so I went to her, um, I went to her work and actually wrote to her and told her that I was doing this um, (laughs) and drew a lot of inspiration from the the way she structures her poems and a lot of the imagery in her poems so is that are you talking so the way she uses words and sort of structures that you're incorporating that similar sort of structure within within music or is there lyrics to this the, with the album as well sort of both there are lyrics to the album because also because because I don't really think of myself as a lyricist I was, of course the first thing I was like I think I should try and write some lyrics let's see let's go <laughs> It's just like a nightmare. But, um, and so, and there were some, there were, uh, yeah, and there were some words, that, there were some sentences, but I've done this before, you know, if I'm reading, like for titles, often I'll open a novel that I feel is close to the piece that I've written in some sort of way, and I'll just choose three words next to each other um, from a page. Um, so I kind of took that t- uh, took that a bit further with Anne Carson's um work but really that actually the structure of a poem like if it's so if it was in like three um verses or I mean not verses like stanzas you know but then and and then and then as I was kind of using her work I was sort of getting a bit more confidence and so then I was departed which is also sometimes I find that's an interesting way to write music you know you start if I'm really stuck I'll go to a piece of work that exists, I know, and then I'll be inspired by it and then obviously move away from it and you make it your own. So it's similar with the words. Uh, it's fascinating as well. I mean, we touched a bit, it, touched on it off, off air before as well, but it, it sounds like, I think sometimes you, when you think about being creatively, musically creative, you tend to sort of think about music, but actually it sounds like you're going everywhere but music oh, yeah. to find sort of creative inspiration. Where else do you kind of... Um, go when you're kind of looking for that inspiration well yeah do you know what that's so funny that you asked that because someone I did an interview and someone said what are your who are your like in but most you know who inspires you the most and I think they were expecting a big list of composers and it was like I was like Francis Bacon Tilda Swinton um Francesca Woodman um who's this wonderful American uh photographer who died when she was very young um Virginia Woolf you know, the list goes on Anne Carson. The list really kind of is... Um, Non-music at all. <laughs> yeah, there's no music in there. And then when I think about it, I'm thinking actually like who... And then if I go back, I'm like Eric Satie, of course, is like that. He His music is really important to me, but it's not 
the music that I used to yeah it's really they're not it's not really music I love listening to music I listen to classical music probably more than I listen to any other genre um but I yeah it's like books I suppose that kind of makes for uh, it's it's a unique approach in that you are you're drawing on creative inspiration which isn't necessarily even audio but to take that creative inspiration and then interpret it musically um you're, you're perhaps not drawing on the same inspiration that i think most people would draw on so i think myself as well as i i definitely believe in finding inspiration outside of music but i do rely on sort of quite heavily on sort of musical influence but i think that in terms of if if finding a unique voice is about you know taking all of the influences and combining them in a unique way you're kind of your influences are sort of not even musical it's just purely sort of artistic expression it's like okay well how can i tell that story musically yeah but I think at the beginning I probably was quite influenced like I think my what I was fed musically when I was at school and like growing up but it's kind of what I was fed but also what I wanted to eat you know (laughs) like it was like Marla um and um I don't know if you find this, but I actually feel like when I'm working, I don't listen to that much music because I'm really scared sometimes that it's going to turn up. You know, there's there's so many stories when like there's a pianist that sat down and be like, oh yeah, that's a good cause. And then they realise it's Let It Be or something. Yeah. <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> ah. yeah. Well, I, I think from my point of view, I, one of the reasons I don't listen to music much when I'm working is because I just spend all day listening to music and make my own music. And it's like the last thing, it's you know it changes your relationship with music when you're making it all day is that like in my downtime it's quite rare that I sort of go oh put on some music it's actually when I take a bit of time off that I sort of go oh, I'm going on holiday I'm like oh cool let's listen to some yeah totally um, I'm exactly the same music. and I have it because yeah. my partner is um listens to a lot of like she listens to a lot of kind of loud music <laughs> <laughs> loud as in sort of like techno or metal no she's actually got the best i love uh the music but uh, it's pj harvey and you know it's you know it's it's so so brilliant but i've had many an awkward taxi journey when i've asked for like could we possibly turn the music kind of down off off <laughs> yeah. and um yeah but i like sitting in silence i don't think it's that i think it's okay definitely and so, and is that something that you, because obviously you're kind of drawing on different influences, is that something that you kind of think of consciously in terms of how do I, are you consciously looking to try and create something new and unique each time? Or is it just kind of that, is it an organic process? I think I'm probably looking to sort of stretch myself. Keep What, what can I do that keep is interesting to me? And then... And of course, like the audience to me has always been the most important part of making work. Like it really, really is. Um, and so because it, that is a relationship, whether it's theatre or cinema um, or, or any other, whether it's novels or, you know, I don't know for, about, I can't speak for the way novelists feel, but for me, definitely as a musician, the audience is, is really key. So I do probably think a little bit about what, might be an what might be interesting to to someone you know to hear but it's definitely it's got to start with where I feel like I want to go with with an idea because because I think 
and sometimes it can be sometimes I don't want to be like really experimental I actually had I wrote something for the for the Philharmonia that it was so experimental and so kind of kind of it was so like it was really noisy it was really experimental it was like so much kind of fun to write but was very aggressive I think um and deliberately and I really wanted to write that and I knew that that's what I was going to write from the minute the commission came in I was like I've got a 90 piece orchestra I'm not going to write a sweet little I just didn't I just knew I wasn't that's not what I wanted to do but I was after that piece I did I think I even wrote to my manager and I was like I think for the next few months I'm just going to write really beautiful things oh (laughs) interesting I really was like I think and but I don't know if you find this when it when you come off a project when you end a project there is saturation yeah and I feel like I I'm I'm always a bit I'm always a bit wobbly at the end of when a project finishes and it's always because I've kind of made that project my home and then that home goes away and I have to look for home and um, I basically I always slightly feel like I need a soft padded place to kind of land not like yeah so sort of decompress yeah under the skin so like what sort of just talk us through that a bit in terms of okay so this was kind of like a loud and slightly more abstract and off the wall how do you go about how do you go about sort of creating that for for an orchestra and can you talk a bit more about sort of you know i know it's quite hard to sort of d- describe something stylistically but what 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 how would you sort of describe it what were the different instruments doing and what and i suppose what were you leaving the audience with because you talk about the relationship with the audience is like what did you want the audience to feel well really helpfully that the commission was part of the Philharmonia's climate change series. So I already had something to write about. So I just went and researched loads of different um, aspects of climate change and, and the sort of technical parts of it. And then I found this thing called a feedback loop and thought, and then went into that and then and then sort of basically found an area that I really wanted to zone in on and wrote these four movements that related to those areas so that was absolutely like as a as a kind of process that being given a brief that's kind of it was a really good starting point and then I thought I had I knew that I wanted it to end as this kind of mad like dark rave like an orchestra like sat like like all of us like dancing crazily like on this planet you know and we're with plastic and emissions and you know there's so much good work being done and it but there was there's something about the the wild kind of abandon of kind of responsibility that we've experienced in the past it has you know it's it's changing now obviously much for the better um so so I knew that that's where I was going and I knew that I usually always write for strings and I strings are my like my total love and where I feel most at home. So true to totally true to form. I was like, so this time I'm going to write for brass mainly. They're going to be the main, like main feature. Um, And so I had those things figured out. And then I knew at the beginning, because I wanted it to be a real journey. I knew I wanted to start like so small, like the smallest I could possibly start, like almost like you, you couldn't hear it. Not, confusingly he's quiet but like, <laughs> <laughs> not just complete silence <laughs> just silence yeah exactly um 
But so I knew that. And then, and I knew that I, I wanted it to be beautiful at moments because I wanted there to be a shock. I didn't want it to be tonal because also like, I think actually that piece was a real opportunity. I made it into an opportunity to, it was a reaction against a lot of the tonal music that I'd been writing for films and it all through my masters and at university, I had been writing very atonal music and was obsessed with it. Absolutely loved it. And just haven't, and that was also why I'm do, I do sound design because I get the, the atonality, you know, world is like, I can do that more in sound design than I can. And something like Emma, the film was such a wonderful opportunity to write a really tone, tonal score, like so beautiful, like proper big tunes, like wonderful sound. Um, and I loved every minute of it. It was like really stunning. And then I, to, as to be able to, to be asked to write that kind of music was, it was so classical and it was such a kind of privilege really. And then you've got the, the sort of even further contrast there of sort of like Vita and Virginia, which was entirely electronic, wasn't it? So yeah. It wasn't a, wasn't a string in sight. No, well, there were two. Two. <laughs> there were two. <laughs> two strings. There were two strings. <laughs> Uh, there were two yeah that was the, my first film score really and that was that process was wild because when the when I was first asked to do the film on face value I thought oh it's going to be a period drama like it's going to just be you know it's going to be that and I think I was listening I suddenly started listening to kind of a lot of you know like atonement and you know these kinds of scores and then Chanya the director said that she didn't want anything um because the story is full of such kind of beauty and longing and romance, she said she didn't want that, um, the music to kind of layer anything, you know, layer, add another kind of layer to that. She wanted the music to speak to the um, spirit of the women. Yeah. Um, and so interesting that you mentioned there. So talking about the sort of like the, the difference between sort of carte blanche when you're working on an album and, and working with someone, you said that sort of Chanya sort of had a, she obviously had a clear vision for what she wanted. How does that make, does it make life easier when the director has a sort of a clear vision versus if they're sort of a bit more kind of laissez-faire? I like it when a director has a clear vision um, I've definitely worked with directors who are much more kind of feel like they want to kind of hand, give you the reins a bit more, but I feel like it's useful because the director is overseeing. It makes sense to me that a director would have a vision and, and I do really appreciate it because it just lets me, and it doesn't have to be a kind of very fleshed out vision, you know, it can just be, I mean, Chinese was very, very specific, although it wasn't, she, she, the only thing that she said was no, she said that she wanted lasers and she didn't want a piano. <laughs> so I was like, okay, lasers. So lasers turned into electronics and, and there was no, and then she didn't want a piano. So there's no piano. And that was great. But I think, uh, I do think it's useful. I do think it's useful if there's a, if there is a, if there's a vision, but I also, but you don't want to be, it doesn't want to be, you don't want to be micromanaged either. So it's kind of, that was all, that can be really, that can get a bit frustrating. Um, so it's a balance, yeah. Yeah, sure. You mentioned earlier about the kind of that importance between the music and the audience. 
how do you i mean has it ever happened that something hasn't been received well by an audience and if so how do you how do you manage that oh god i remember there was like i've i've done some actually like some, some of the theater that i've done sometimes you know it's not like a hit but it's kind of you're all kind of in it together if they start if anyone starts to like single you out like there was one there definitely there was one time I was pretty young I'll never forget it these things never leave you as well so I, I have a real <laughs> trauma yeah definitely because it's like and then you have to make a decision about whether you're going to read reviews and what do they mean to you and how do you feel about critics and it's all quite noisy stuff but um yeah I remember there was a critic I'd done a play at Chichester and um I'd really enjoyed it. I thought it was like, we it, we all had a sort of nice time. And um, I'd written this kind of jazzy, slightly jazzy score. And there was one critic who hated it, absolutely hated it. And I was like really devastated. And then I became really like precious about that stuff. And um, I did... I did another thing for theatre. I was still, cu- I was like cutting my teeth. So it was all really formative and really, it was healthy stuff, really good in a way. I did one other show. It was like at the, um, where was it? It was where the, it was the, the small theatre at the Trafalgar Studios. Um, and um, there was a critic who said something like, they just didn't really, they didn't really think that what I'd done kind of supported the scene changes enough or something. And I, again, I was, but it wasn't even like, it wasn't, it wasn't even a terror. I just took it so badly. And I really had to kind of think about what my relationship is with reviews. Uh, Because, you know, of course, if someone sends me, you know, like I love the good reviews. (laughs) yeah yeah like who doesn't who doesn't love a good review well i suppose there's a difference as well because obviously even working with a director you sometimes send a cue and they don't like it it gets rejected and even that's difficult but at least it's not public i think it's when it's when it's public it just it probably makes it that (laughs) that bit more difficult to sort of take when you've sort of been publicly flogged rather than just flogged behind closed doors and i don't mind it's it's such a sort of like it's so different because if if I'm collaborating with someone and they say I don't like it I'm like okay that's fine like I really mm. that I feel so different about that it's like a completely different brain or I'm a different you know because you're collaborating and that's a process that you both go on and then you land on something that is working and that's and then we're all happy but there was something that kind of really uh, irked me about just you know a critic sort of getting the train up from London coming to a going to a show and just being like I didn't you know because also I'm like but what maybe they were hungry <laughs> maybe they just had a crap day but no they or maybe they just didn't like the work and that was the thing and I was like no actually probably and then I listened to that score I mean this honestly was about 12 years ago and I still remember it so and I listen, yeah, I listen to the score again. I don't think it's that bad, but I could probably, you know, I don't know. Well, this is this is something that um, Stephen Warbeck talked about. Um, he was saying that you know there is no right and wrong. Yeah, there is. You know, if you give the same cue to twenty different composers, they'll all approach it in a different way, and then none of those are right and wrong. It's just what resonates with that director. And one of the things really nice is you're talking about it as very much a collaboration, which I think is is a really good good takeaway for me because I do tend to take 
take it personally, but you're very much seeing it as like this is a this is a journey of exploration between two or maybe even more people. And you know, within that, it's like trial and error. We sort of like we play with it and, and we sort of and without being too attached to a particular idea. And when someone says, "I'm not," I don't feel that's quite working. It's like, oh, okay, fair enough. And what Stephen said, which was really interesting, is that sometimes that process actually forces you to sort of go and explore areas that you otherwise might not have explored, which can only be you know a good yeah, thing. That's totally true. It's totally true. I really agree with that. And constructive criticism is always good, which is when the collabor- which is the collaborative stuff. Yeah, um, sure. But just someone being like, "Oh, you know, it wasn't for me." You go, "Okay, well then, that's okay." That's great, but you know, there was there were there were five hundred other people in that theatre, and they might have liked it. So. Maybe that maybe they liked it. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never know. No. Um, you mentioned earlier as well about when you kind of start a new project that you sometimes, particularly at the beginning of it, you sort of it sounds like you experience quite a bit of sort of self doubt. Um, how have you kind of, do you have any sort of particular sort of strategies for, for coping with that? And how, and has that changed since you started out? You know, you're talking about this, this, this project, this was 12 years ago. Has, does it get any easier? And have you sort of worked out coping strategies or is it always the same? I wish it was different. <laughs> I wish it had become different. The only thing that is, that has really improved is that I can see it. And I know exactly, I, I pretty much now know what I'm going to experience at each stage, like down to the weeks, really. of The seven pillars of uh, Isabel's sort of composing. Yeah, it's literally that. Oh, my God, it really is literally that. And I know that for the first... I know that the only way is through. You know, you can't go over it and you can't, like, go under it. You just have to go through it. And it is... It's like that thing of, like, stepping into the abyss and starting a project is... I, I actually start... I get sweaty palms just actually thinking about it. It is so... It's really exciting and it's... There's so much of it that is is like thrilling, but when you ha- when it's when you've had all the conversations and you've looked at all the material and you've read the script, when it's just then you in the studio and you have to sit down and you go, "What does this sound like?" That just and then committing to then committing to something. It's uh, it is yeah. I could get you know it can get it's just it's hours it's hours and hours and hours and I refuse sometimes to leave the studio until I've done something oh really you won't step away it's like you will it's like it's like the sort of head teacher you will sit there and you will keep working until you've done something worthwhile I have to and then sometimes I actually used to do things like if I was stuck when I because my studio is not at home anymore but when my studio was at home if I was stuck I would begin the day again so I'd have a shower change my clothes um sometimes like have breakfast you know I would literally begin again uh or like or change if I woke up and and I'd like had some cereal if I was doing it again I'd instead of having the cereal I'd go for a walk around the block or some you know I'd like but I don't do that so much anymore but that works that's that's really interesting because it's that's obviously kind of off the back of well I say hopefully off the back of coronavirus hopefully we're sort of at the end of this but who knows there's obviously a lot of people of who have never worked from home who haven't experienced what it's like to not have that clear mental separation between now I'm at home now I'm at work and when those two environments become confused it sounds like you were taking deliberate steps to sort of go right I'm going to have a shower I'm going to get changed I'm going to go for a walk around the block and then come back in by and hoping by doing so that you're going to kind of create some mental separation from you know now I'm back to work um but yeah I think there's probably a lot of people 
around the world at the moment, sort of in the early phase, you know, it starts off as a novelty. Oh yeah, cool. Work from home. Don't have to commute, blah, 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 blah. But then weird shit happens over a period yeah. of time of working from home and, and probably sort of reaching. Yeah. That. And the, the, the blurred, like the, you know, the lines of work and, and home, it's like pajamas, basically, you know, it's just that when you're just staying in your pajamas and working and sometimes, you know, that's a good thing. Sometimes that's like, you know, sometimes Absolutely. that's what you need to do. But that was yeah. the best thing about coronavirus is I could wear tracksuit bottoms for, for basically 18 yeah, exactly, months. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah, interesting. Um, and does it, I mean, has it got any easier? Do you find it easier today than, or is it just the fact that you know you've got those stages to sort of push through? It's like, okay, well, I know what I've got to go through. I've just got to go through it. I find that what actually is a big, what what is a big thing for me is um, there's part of me that thinks that the older I get, the... I don't want to ever be safe mm. in terms of, um, uh, you know, that doesn't mean like I don't want to ever write anything that is traditional or because I love writing those things and I love writing things that are, you know, that move me and hopefully move other people and quiet things. And But I think what I mean is I don't want ever want to repeat myself. I think that's, yeah, sure. that's more of it because um, because I feel like, when I was younger, I didn't really know very much. And I was very like, I didn't, I was just doing things and experimenting and writing whatever came to my, and I didn't have the, the critic wasn't very, the self kind of critic wasn't um, very evolved. And now it is quite evolved, um, which is good and bad because I kind of know how to deal with it more. But when I'm going into, uh, when I'm going into a project, I, I feel like, I want to always be reaching for something that I, yeah. And that, so that, it's not like it doesn't get that, that I'm just really aware of, I think. Yeah. Well, what's interesting as well is it sounds like that whilst, because this is something I get hung up on, is sort of like irreverence and trying to do things differently. But it sounds like what you're doing is rather than sort of going, okay, this is, what's the end product going to be and how's that going to be different? It almost sounds like you're just looking at, well, where, how can I find a different starting point, a different foundation on which to build, which strikes me as been actually the, 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 the way to, the way to do something unique, the way to do it is to sort of challenge yourself to come at it from a, you know, a starting point of where's a new place to start from rather than, okay, how's it going to sound, you know, in a few weeks when I've sort of done the first things. I think um, that, that does feel kind of true. Getting a taste. <laughs> I just quickly love to sort of, uh, sort of get a taste for sort of because I always think what you mean we've drawn it before you talked about what you were fed at home in terms of music and you mentioned Marla um are there other kind of um not necessarily film scores but other kind of seminal albums or pieces of music or experiences with music which you feel have sort of helped shape you today as a person but also in terms of what resonates with you musically and what you put out into the world for me, like the big hitters were at the, at the beginning, yeah, like Marla, basically all the kind of very kind of um, late romantic composers. And then Morricone, Danny Elfman, um, you know, like Edward Scissorhands, you know, I just... Um, and then... but. You know, I really love um, the kind of journey, watching the kind of culture, basically, of, of film, score, film scoring kind of evolve because 
I'll never forget when um, The Social Network came out. No, actually, it was before that. It was when American Beauty, it was that. And it was Thomas Newman. And it was when uh, that, that, and that score for me anyway, changed so much because before we'd had all these big tunes and, and then that was, that, that was a huge, and that actually kind of started, I feel like a kind of post classical idea, you know? Mm. And where do you feel film score is now, culturally speaking? Well, I don't know because I've been talking to kind of friends, you know, it's like, and actually talking to directors about it because when they're thinking about vision of, for the music for their film, they talk about, it's not that they're talking about where they think the culture is, but it's just interesting what they, what they kind of instinctively feel like they want that is fresh, which is how, you know, culture then reveals itself. Um, I suppose there's been quite a lot of kind of drone music, I suppose, mm. in the last five years. Yeah. Um, well, it's sort of peaked with June. Have you seen June? No, I haven't seen it yet. So it's fantastic. I mean, it, but it, it, it plays into what you're saying. It's very much sort of kind of synth-led, fairly atonal drone. Nice. But creates an um, incredible soundscape and, and adds, you know, ramps up the intensity um, of of everything beautifully. I think because you mentioned atonal music and like mm. when you were sort of at, at university, you were kind of, are there sort of like certain electric, electronic music producers that you were sort of into or sort of you can think of? Well, I like Detroit techno really specifically. <laughs> Detroit Ooh. techno. I don't, I don't even know what Detroit techno is. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just... I I kind of won't go into the the like sort of because someone someone will know more than me, but I just know that I really love that sound world and those producers. But I also, you know, Daniel Avery, John Hopkins. Um, all, the thing that kind of joins, I think, those artists is that they use they don't. It's not like clean sounds, you know. It's not just like an electronic sound. And I've always been in a much more kind of like crunchy. I always like the crunchy places. So I guess, um, and then, but now I feel like w what I'm really interested in is kind of, basically I've, with film scores, for me personally, I really love some sort of a hook. So yeah. if it's like, even in a drone world, you could have a hook. And I think that's just, and it sounds so obvious, but I think it's, that is just really important. And if it's like what, even one sound, if it's like incredibly minimal and you maybe only have three or four kind of identifiable sounds they those sounds might be made up of kind of hundreds of layers of things but then it's like that kind of it's like clarity basically so having um and it doesn't have to be that doesn't mean like having a kind of big theme kind of played on a instrument traditional instrument but I do think you know because when I think like my, one of my favorite scores ever is Taxi Driver and like Bernard Herrmann I think is one of the of course you know I'm not the only one who thinks this um but it's kind of what I find really interesting is I really like, I enjoy writing tunes, but I enjoy also burying them and also abstracting them and kind of making them feel kind of not as, maybe perhaps not declaring them in the same way as those older scores. Do you feel like we've kind of, yeah, because obviously in the 80s with the likes of um, John Williams, it was, you know, it, we were ve it was very much about melody, very much about hooks. Do you feel that it's modern sort of film score 
is much less about sort of clearly identifiable melodies and hooks? Uh, or are they just more subtle? I think I think the film schools that have done really well over the last decade, let's say, have have all had some sort of a hook. Um, but it's just not been in a very in a particularly traditional like orchestration all the time. So I'd, off the top of your head, can you think of any that's, that any that just sort of spring to mind? Well, Joker, I think, yeah. is like a really good one because you know you just hear those that that like two or three note motif that Hilda wrote, and you go like, yeah, you'd recognise it anyway. You know, it's like, um, and that, of course, that's in a kind of strings context. But I'm trying to think of. Mika Levy is another one. She's, you know, if you Monos was like a, a film score that I really enjoyed, and that was maybe two or three kind of main sounds. It was just that kind of bottle flute sound that was just the two. That was the hook, you know. I thought it was so good. So those, yeah. And I'm trying to think. And then Sicario. I know that's going back a while, but you know, that's that's an unusual. You know, that that was another score that I think changed, that shifted That was things. the first one that, when you said that, that was the first one that sprang to mind for some reason. Yeah. Um, and how we've heard that kind of like descending double bass yeah. uh, motif a lot since. So much. But it was It was so good. Yeah, he um, is so good, so good. And that did change that landscape. Definitely, yeah, As we, because you're right, I totally agree with you. We've heard it loads and loads and loads. And even Arrival, you know, Johan Johansson, the sort of like... The sort of the, you know talk about atonal, but the sort of beautiful pads and yeah. you know, they recorded a lot to tape, didn't they? And sort of slowed it down, and then actually recorded over stuff because you'd have our strange artifacts from the bit you recorded before. Oh, I didn't know that. Stunning, amazing. I'd love to. I'm going to dig out that. Was that a podcast that you listened to that was on that? Which is oh, do you know what? I can't even remember. Um, I'm going to Google it. It might have been an article. I think it might be an article I read, actually, because mm. I just, I heard it and I was just so kind of blown away about it. I was like, wow, what's what's going on there with the kind of the voices as well? And yeah. there's a lot of wood, a lot of wooden percussion as well, where they were just sort of like banging bits of wood, but actually moving, you know, stereo micing a piece of wood and moving up and down the piece of wood, banging different parts of it to sort of, so not relying on any sort of panning to get this sort of movement. It was actually someone moving up and down, Ugh. if I remember right. Yeah, there's a good song the, exploder. Yes. Episode on that, on the wood. Oh, is it? Well, I heard about the word uh, thing. That might be where I've heard it. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway. That might be where, yeah. where I heard it, yeah. Um, awesome. Um, and just quickly, I mean, in terms of sort of TV, film, are there certain, can you name certain films or certain shows? I mean, you mentioned Arrival and the sort of films that have changed the sort of soundscape. Were there certain sort of similar seminal f- movies or TV series which sort of you think have kind of shaped sort of who you are your appreciation of tv and or the visual arts and and or music i think tarkovsky okay david lynch mm. these are just filmmakers i suppose but that's kind of yeah no well yeah, yeah. and um can you, can you remember anything as a kid like going to the cinema and seeing something and just being like oh whoa i do remember that? i do remember um yeah, I do remember kind of seeing things like E.T. Although, actually, if I'm totally honest, 
I don't. I didn't have like the biggest reaction to ET. I think it was. That. I was petrified. <laughs> I scared the shit out of me. Did ET? Because there's this weird thing in ET where they 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 shoot below the waist. There's no. You don't see other than there's only one person. I think it's the mother. You don't see any adults above waist height for the whole the whole oh, film. That's, so that's interesting. Which is only retrospectively I recognise that, but that was scary. And then the whole. I just. I. I mean. I, I enjoyed it, but it was there was a level of fear with ET, which actually I think probably took off some of the sheen for me yeah that's interesting that's it because i remember basically but again i remember just like being so basically i think my ears did more than my eyes did i like loved the film so much but i was so dazzled so dazzled by the music i mean it's one of those so yeah and you know and also i only found out the other day that et was written by a woman oh really yes which made me just very happy like it even more well you know what i mean it's like you know at that yeah. time in the 80s you know yeah, i didn't and actually and when i and it when i think about um wendy carlos you know scoring the shining and you know it just that it's it's um it's a strange one but because because there's been because there was such a minority then uh it's kind of and they were, su- they were such great films. You know, Clockwork Orange was scored by Wendy Carlos. So it's like, although that film, that really scared the absolute. That is a, that's a. Yeah. Yeah. How old, how old were you when you saw that? I was that? too young when I saw that, I think. Right, I saw okay. that when I was like really too young. And it's, um, there is, I've only seen it once. And it's like images of that are just like seared onto my brain. The level of trauma. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so good though, but it definitely has influenced. Yeah. Um, if I'd just like to finish up with, um, with a couple of quick fire questions and a bit of random trivia. So I'm kind of obsessed with, um, like random facts about kind of movies and or soundtracks and scores. Do you have any random facts or? Well, the only random fact I have that I can think of is, is a bit of a painful one. Oh, (laughs) And actually, it's another Kubrick one. And I remember, um, I remember learning that it was John North who was initially um, hired to write the music, and it was before they had they were doing demos. So the legend goes that um, Kubrick turned up at the film scoring session and heard the first cue, and just looked at John North and said, "Is it all like that?" And John North said. Yeah, it is. And um, and they they finished the scoring session, but then they replaced the whole score. And I think that is something that he'd been working on for about two years. And I think it and I think he took it. I think it affected his health. You know, it was a big, big, but it was a really important story because I was like, that's the other thing that people say so much in this kind of business is that people get replaced more than you'd think you know it happens a lot it really does happen a lot and um and it's okay I mean it can it like there are you know if you're spending two years on a score yeah it's that is very very painful to imagine that incredibly painful and but um, that was my first story that I'd ever heard of of a composer getting kind of replaced and um and it was it was an important one 
thank God we can mock up demos on the computer. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> to, to get two years down the line and then sort of go, actually, I'm not sure I like this music, it obviously probably wouldn't happen. But um, yeah, there's something Stephen Warbeck touched on, actually. Is he His agent reckons about two-fifths of composers get sort of sacked during during a job, which people, you know, it's not advertised, it's not out there. And it must be really, really hard. Um, but again, at the same time, it's sometimes it's it's not actually about the music it's just about the relationship and the communication and and sometimes the the gap between the director and the composer isn't bridgeable and in that instance as you said earlier sometimes it's better to sort of like take a step back and go actually do you know what maybe I'm not the right person for this but I'm sure like it's definitely going to happen I know it's going to happen (laughs) I hope it doesn't (laughs) but I like but um but I'm really glad to know about to, to be I'm really glad to kind of be like what Stephen said you know to have those kind of facts because writing scores is it's really intense and it's really hard work and you do put you, you know it's like you put your soul into it and you have very intense relationships with your collaborators so it's gonna hurt probably I think but everyone most people are pretty kind people so sure well yeah and you know thank you to you to, for so sort of generously sharing today because again I think this it's I always find it very kind of reaffirming in a positive way when I I hear about composers having similar experiences and when you realize that actually it's totally normal it happens all the time it happens to all of us that it kind of just makes it somewhat easier to sort of to, to handle to know that it's yeah. okay um so um thank you for sort of um generously sharing all your experiences today um I've got a quick bit of trivia for you. Oh my God, yes. Do you know what the first commercially available film soundtrack was? No, I don't. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? No. Do you know what year? Oh gosh, it's going to be... No, I don't. Have a guess. Well, is it going to be something crazy, like... Yeah. 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 But this is where I'm going to kind of really expose my kind of like lack of knowledge in terms of filmmaking. We can, dates. well, it, was it like it's, 1911 it's like, or something? Is it like a bit, bit, bit later was than it that? 1934. Not far off. It was 1937. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, but it was such a kind of radically new concept that I th- think the album was called something like um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, the soundtrack to the Disney animation movie or whatever because they had to be really explicit about right. what this was <laughs> because you know it's the first time that ever you know a, a movie soundtrack had been made how does it available. sound um i don't know do you know what? i've not actually listened to it um i wonder if it's I think, available anywhere i imagine you can only listen to it on a gramophone yeah it's only available you can, uh, you, there's, yeah. a, there's a there's a gramophone app that you plug into spotify yeah. and you can listen to it through that gramophone um wow that's amazing i didn't know yeah. that i'd love um, to hear that Couple of quick fire questions for you to finish up. Yep. What's your favourite biscuit? Oh, a custard cream came instantly wow. to mind. Yeah. A uh, little known fact about Isabel Wallerbridge? Um. Ooh. Uh, I'm a bit scared of monkeys. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. I like apes gen- monkeys generally or is it like you know specifically it's something that's uh, gibbons? Of, yeah it's kind of it is kind of general uh it's because and it but i think it's because i watched a um i watched a film and i watched one of the uh like a few of the nature shows you know the nature programs and um the relationship it was particularly like the mating 
uh, the mating. Right, okay. uh, it was like that episode. There's a really amazing program on at the moment called the Mating Game, which I think is it, which is the new David Attenborough. Yes, uh, yeah. and I watched the monkeys one, and I was terrified. Oh wow! Absolutely. Terrifying. It sounds like as a youngster you were exposed to basically what is uh, monkey porn, yeah. and it's sort of like seriously traumatizing. But I wasn't that scared of them until actually it's really been a kind of a recent thing. It's kind of really been only been in the last. Like, so I think I did. What I think there was one. There was a film that I watched that did scare scare me. So mm. yeah, interesting. <laughs> well, that my next question was what scares you. So well, that kind of double barrel. I think. Um, what scares me? Aside from monkeys. Well, dying scares me. Death scares me. Yeah. Um, my loved ones, it's probably I'm scared, more scared, more afraid of my loved ones, death of my loved ones than I am about my own. Um, yeah. Um, and finally, um, what advice, if any, would you give to your younger self? To my younger self, I think I would say... I would say I would I would suggest to my younger self to talk more. I would I there was a sort of classic thing when um I would sort of something would happen and then I wouldn't sort of tell anyone about it for about 6 months and I don't do that anymore and I stopped doing that you know a while ago but I do think and then actually I think that's why I have had such an intense relationship with music because I used to pour everything into mm, the music but I do think um, talking about your feelings when you're, especially if you're, you know, at any age, but definitely I think I think being in, I remember my 20s as being a very, I don't know about you, but they were very intense. Um, you, you know, there's lots of big changes happening and, um, and you're kind of starting your life in a way, uh, in one way. And um, yeah, so I think talking. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I speak from the perspective of a, of a guy, but I think certainly British culture is there's, you know, I'm a, I'm a product of a generation which wasn't far removed from sort of just keep calm and carry on. Mm. Um, whereas actually talking about things, even by virtue of saying it out loud, Mm. um, changes your relationship to it in a, in a, in a positive way. Um, so yeah, that's a, a beautiful and I think poignant, uh, place to, uh, to leave it um isabel thanks so much for taking the time to chat it's been you know insightful and, and thank you for so generously sharing it's been uh, yeah i've loved it i could go on for the, <laughs> the next hour but oh thank you um, so we'll much for having me really thank you it's been it's really a pleasure lovely to chat that's a pleasure and um so just finally if, if people want to kind of find you and what you're up to where where do they go um oh well i did well some of the music's on spotify yeah <laughs> And um, I don't know, I sort of like, I suppose I'm, I'm, someone described me as a reluctant Instagram uh, poster, which is true. But there, if, if there's stuff coming up, I tend to kind of put it there. Yeah, I think you're certainly more enthusiastic about Instagram than I am. I, certainly, <laughs> judging by the, ju- certainly judging by the frequency of your posting, yeah. Oh, I, have to, I have to... I sort of, yeah, uh, when we go into my hate-hate relationship with social media, but obviously I will be promoting this on social media and the, the irony <laughs> is not lost on me. Yeah, exactly, it's tough. Um, oh, thanks, Jim. Um, what's your Instagram handle? Uh, Isabel WB. Isabel WB. Awesome, Isabel. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, and given that you've listened this far, I feel you might have, then I would be honoured and incredibly grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate and review on your podcast platform of choice. By subscribing, you'll automatically be notified each time a new episode drops. And by rating the show, you tell the artificial intelligence that will soon be running the world that this podcast is worth listening to. I certainly get a lot of insights and value from these conversations, and I genuinely hope you do too. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email me, podcast at larpmusic.com. Larpmusic.com is my digital abode, and the home of the podcast is larpmusic.com forward slash Sync Music Matters Podcast. And Sync Music Matters Podcast is hyphenated. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Hold up. 